Good morning. Take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking, as Joel mentioned a minute ago, um, how he often mentions that we made it through another week, and uh, we need to thank the Lord for that. We did make it safely through another week. But I'm going to add something to that this morning. We are, all of us, are one week closer to heaven than we were when we gathered here last Lord's Day morning. Isn't that great? One week closer. Well, Second um, Corinthians 5, we're going to go a little deeper into, we got started on that last week, we're going to go a little deeper into our study of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5 this morning, uh, where we have found the clearest and most complete text in all the Word of God on the subject of the intermediate state. We're studying heaven, of course, and our current question in that study is this, what will we be like in the present heaven? And right now we're talking about our form there in heaven. What form will we have in the present heaven? Now, as I told you last week, uh, that's a question that has two different answers. Depending on when and how you arrive there, our form in heaven will be different before the rapture and then it will be after the rapture. And so right now, we'll get to that second part, but right now, uh, we are talking about our form in heaven before the rapture. If you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, were to die right now today and go to heaven before the rapture occurs, what form would you be in there in the present heaven? How would it be for you during that period of time there in between death and and resurrection, a period of time that theologians refer to as the intermediate state. Let's take a minute to ask God for his help as we study today, and then we're going to go back to work. Uh, the answer to that question is 2 Corinthians 5, and we're actually going to get Paul's answer to that question today, by the way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Uh, we come this morning wanting to understand everything that we can understand about this rather admittedly difficult and uh, even mysterious subject, Father. And so we pray now uh, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, and that you would teach us. Uh, we commit our study time to you, asking for your help, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're there in Second Corinthians chapter 5 now. The focus uh, of our study will be in the first, five, uh, first eight verses. Excuse me. Um, we're not going to get that far today. But that is our text, and so before we jump into that again, let me take a minute to briefly remind you of the context. Context is always important when you study the Word of God. Let me remind you of the context here and what prompted Paul to write this second letter to the Corinthians. False teachers, we talked about that a little bit last week. False teachers were there in the church. They're a problem all through the New Testament. They were there, false teachers were there in the church at Corinth, and they were discrediting Paul. They were undermining the precious truth of the gospel that he had preached to them. And so this second letter to the Corinthians is basically a defense of Paul's apostleship. The whole letter is that. And let me emphasize for you again, I know I did last week, but let me emphasize for you again, because this is important, that this letter is not a defense of Paul the man. Not a defense of Paul the man. Paul did not have, mark this, Paul did not have a pride problem. Paul did not have an ego problem here. Paul's concern is not about Paul. Uh, Paul's concern is about the truth of the gospel. Paul's concern is about his delegated authority from God as an apostle. And Paul's concern was about the spiritual well-being of the Corinthians. And so those are the things that this inspired letter is defending. But then also understand something else. Also understand that this battle for Paul was more than just a theological battle. Not only were the false teachers discrediting Paul's authority as an apostle, not only were they undermining the precious gospel truth that he had preached, um, they hated Paul. I mean, they really hated Paul. They wanted to kill Paul for that gospel that he so passionately, boldly, and tenaciously preached, not only here in Corinth, but everywhere he went. And I think I read for you some examples that would illustrate that last week. 
And so mark that as another significant element here in the context of this second letter to the Corinthians. As Paul penned this letter, he was a man who was under the very real and constant threat of death every single day. In chapter 4, and verse 10, Paul said that he was always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. And in verse 11, he said that he was constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That, I'm not going to read any more, I did last week, but that was Paul's life right now. He was literally living on the brink of death every day. But then what do we know about this guy? Paul was a bulldozer, I'm telling you. Paul was a bulldozer. What do we know about this man of God? He kept right on going full steam ahead, full steam ahead anyway, because mark this now, this is one of the most profound lessons in this chapter. He did not care if he died. He did not care if he died. You know, most men, even believing men, fight against death, don't they? They try to avoid death, postpone death, but Paul didn't care if he died. And in fact, and in fact, as I shared with you last week, he actually preferred death. Not making this up. He actually preferred death. Not in some wrong way, not in some morbid kind of way, but only because he was that absolutely sure of the promises of God and the reality of heaven that awaited him on the other side of death. I've been praying, hoping and praying, that these studies on this great subject would produce that in you and in me. Paul was that sure of the promises of God and the reality of heaven uh, that he actually preferred death. Not just a conclusion, by the way, about this guy that we have drawn by implication. He actually said that. He came right on and said that with his own lips. He said it twice, in fact. He said it in Philippians 1.23. I'm not going to read that verse again. I did last week. But he said it again then in verse 8 of the text that we're studying right now. He made it very clear that he preferred death over life. That was Paul's perspective on life and death. A perspective, think about that. That was Paul's perspective on life and death. A perspective that he will clearly articulate. A perspective that he will clearly model for you and me in this text that we're studying. And so as I said, I hope you will think about that as we study this text. Just think about just think about how freeing it would be to really live that way. How freeing it would be to serve your Savior with a real perspective like that. A real perspective. The worst thing, the very worst thing my persecutors could ever do to me um, is bring about my death. And, oh, that's what I actually prefer anyway um, because that will usher me out of this debilitating body and out of this fallen world into the presence of my Savior, right? That was Paul's perspective. All people that are longing for heaven would be that real and that strong so as to create in us a perspective like Paul's perspective. I really believe with all my heart that that's the perspective God wants you and me to have. God wants us to long for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for Health, like a hungry man, longs for food, and like a thirsty man, longs for water. And certainly we don't long, let me qualify that a little bit, certainly we don't long for the pain and the suffering that is sometimes associated with death. You know, I often say, it's not death I'm afraid of, it's sometimes the process, the process that can be very grueling and painful and long and hard. We don't long for the pain and the suffering that is sometimes associated with death, and Paul didn't either. Nor do we long for this, nor do we long for the separation from loved ones. That's the other hard part about death, isn't it? Nor do we long for the separation from loved ones. But if we really understand, listen, if we really understand what Paul understood about what's on the other side of death, if that is, if that is as real to us as it was to Paul, then like him, we ought to long for death itself. Think about that. And if you don't, and if you don't, um, then it's probably because you have grown too fond of this passing world. Uh, it's probably because you're settling for its fading joys and even lulling yourself into contentment with sinful fallen humanness. It's probably because your mind is not yet set on the things above. 
and uh, it's still consumed with all the things that are here on this earth. And so let me say this to you this morning: if you're if you're not exactly where you need uh, where you think you need to be, or where you ought to be on this right now, against the backdrop of this incredible man of God named Paul, be encouraged, because that's what our text is all about. That's what our text is all about. We're studying this text right now because we want to know about the intermediate state. We're only here because we want to know about that. But um, the word of God is rich and full. We're here because we want to know a little bit about the intermediate state, and we're going to get that. But I promise you we're going to get way more than that. We're going to get way more than that here along the way. In this text, Paul is going to show us where this profound Christian perspective he had came from and how it works. We're going to see that in this text. And so as we study, here's my exhortation to you and to me, and to me, as we study this text, if you will let the word of God do its transforming work in your heart and in your mind, you will find your perspective changing, lining up with that one that Paul is modeling for us here. And with those context reminders now, that's important to keep in mind, let's go ahead and read the text. If you're there in 2 Corinthians 5, follow please, I'm going to read the first eight verses there in the Word of God. Here's what it says. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So that's what we're going to work on now for the next week or two or three. Let me give you the outline. I think I gave you this last week, but let me give it to you again now. By way of outline, there are three main points here in these eight verses. <clears throat> in verse 1, we looked at that one last week. In verse 1, we have the doctrinal foundation for Paul's profound Christian perspective. And that doctrinal foundation now is the believer's sure and certain promise of a resurrected body. That's where this whole thing begins. And then in the rest of this text, for the other seven verses, Paul goes on to explain the two different ways that church-age believers will... We start with the promise. The rest of the text, he goes on to explain the two different ways <clears throat> that church-age believers will get those promised resurrection bodies. And Paul is even going to give us his first and second preference on that. All right? He's going to tell us how we're going to get those bodies. There's two different ways. And he's going to tell us his first and second preference on that. Now, from verses 2 to 4, these are the verses we're going to look at today. Paul is going to tell us what his first preference on that would be. And uh, it's kind of exciting, actually. <clears throat> Paul's first preference on that would be rapture, resurrection. Rapture, resurrection. And as Paul tells us why that's his first preference the intermediate state subject is going to come up for us. So you see, it's kind of, that subject is just sort of going to come up along the way as a side note here. And so as I said a little while ago, we will get our answer to that form before the rapture question from Paul in our study today. But that's really not his focus. That's just going to come along the way. And then when we get to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we'll look at Paul's second preference. If he can't have rapture resurrection... And that would be to die and go to heaven in that intermediate state. And so, understand again this morning something that I think I mentioned to you last week. Um, in the flow of this text, rapture resurrection is to be preferred over the intermediate state, right? Paul's first choice, 
rapture, resurrection. That's to be preferred over the intermediate state. But listen, even the intermediate state is, to put it in Paul's words in Philippians 1.23, even the intermediate state is very much better than staying here on this fallen earth in a sinful human body of flesh. And so that's where we're going here. Take just a very quick look with me at verse 1 again now. By way of review, we looked at this verse last week, so this is just a quick review. Look at verse 1. For we know. For we know, Paul says. I hope you always mark those words as precious words when you see them, those three words in the scriptures. For we know. What we have right here in verse 1 is a sure and certain promise from the word of God. For we know, you need to know this, Paul says, and you can know this because God said so. Uh, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is something you need to know. This is something that will need to be anchored on the bedrock of your soul if you're ever going to have that perspective that Paul had. What is it that you need to know? There is, all right, mark this. There is a building from God in your future if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. There is a building from God in your future. Now remember from last week, we talked about Paul's metaphors here. The earthly tent there in verse 1 is what? Remember, that's our very weak, frail, and temporary human bodies. And the promised building from God then would be those strong, permanent, not of this creation and eternal, glorified and resurrected bodies that Paul says we can know that we have. We don't have them yet, but we will have them as sure as the word of God is true. And so... Here's the promise. If, if your earthly tent gets torn down, Paul says, if that human body of yours dies, you can be sure that in your future, you have a building from God. That's absolute. You have a building from God. And note again, we talked about it last week, note again the significance of that little word, if. Why did Paul use that little word, if? Because... Not all church-age believers are going to die, right? That's why I said, if your earthly tent gets torn. Not all church-age believers are going to die. But whether you die or not, there will be, for you, a building from God. There will be, for you, whether you die or not, there will be, for you, a resurrected and glorified body. That is the sure and certain promise of 2 Corinthians 5.1. And let's begin to move on now. There are two different ways. Two different ways now that church-age believers will get those resurrected bodies as this text goes on. Some believers will get those resurrected bodies at the rapture, but others will die before that and have to wait in heaven for their resurrected bodies. And if you're one of those believers who dies before the rapture and have to wait there for your resurrected body... We're here right now to find out what form you will be in there while you wait without your body. All right? That's why we're here. And let's go on this morning now to verses 2, 3, and 4, where Paul is going to answer that question for us. He's going to answer that question for us while he's explaining his what his <clears throat> first preference would be with regard to that sure and certain promise from God. And so here's the question for Paul. How would you like to get your promised resurrection body, Paul? Well, if I could run the world, Paul will say in these verses, I would choose rapture resurrection, hands down. Paul's greatest desire, as expressed in this text, Paul's first preference would be to be alive When Jesus Christ comes, as he promised he would, to catch his church away and meet her in the air. Is that your desire? Is that the passion of your heart? Are you looking up every day? You really ought to be, especially now. 
especially now. Um, let me read these three verses for you again that we're going to study today. It'll be the focus of our study today, 2, 3, and 4. <clears throat> then I'm going to show you how they break down, and then we're going to talk about what they mean by what they say. And again now, it's in the midst of this section of our text now where, where we're going to be getting into that subject of the intermediate state. We're going, to, we're going to nail something down about that today before we're done, but we need to do it in the context of Scripture. You know, sometimes, sometimes you have to work a little bit when you study the Word of God before you hit that pay dirt that you're looking for, right? And this is one of those cases, all right? So let me read these verses. We'll break them down, and then we're going to go to work on them. Here's what it says again, 2, 3, and 4. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, I've got to talk to you for a minute here about structure before we go any further. Notice, first of all here, that in these three verses that I just read for you, Paul expresses the greatest longing of his heart twice. Twice. Grammatically, if you look at the text here, you will see, grammatically there are two sentences in these three verses. We have one sentence in verses 2 and 3, and then we have the second sentence in verse 4. And in both of these sentences now, Paul is going to say the same basic three things twice. In these two sentences, he's going to say the same basic three things twice. Three things, then, that we're going to identify as our sub-points this morning. And then as we study down through them, I'm going to take the parallel thoughts in those sentences and kind of lump them together. And so that means we're going to have to jump around a little bit, but that'll be okay. It won't be difficult. And here now are those three things that Paul is going to tell us in these three verses twice. You have them right there in your sermon notes, so this is easy. Three things. He's first of all going to tell us, and in each one of these, he's going to tell us twice. All right, I just said that once in each, once in each sentence. He's first of all going to tell us why we groan. Why we groan. He's going to give us a reason for our current groaning, or more literally, that word means our sighing. We're sighing. We're a sighing bunch of people, believe me. From there, he's going to tell us what we long for, why we groan. From there, he's going to tell us what we long for the most, followed by what we would prefer to bypass if we were able to get what we long for the most. Right? That's the flow of this text. All of those things he's going to say twice, once in each, once in each one of those parallel sentences. Now say, let's go back now to those parallel statements that tell us why we groan. Let's think about that for a minute. Both of these statements, you will notice, begin with the words, for indeed, if you're glancing at the text, you will notice that uh, little phrase at the beginning of verse 2, and you will notice that little phrase again at the beginning of verse 4. And what does for indeed mean here? Well, it means that there's no doubt about it. It means that as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a groaning, sighing bunch of folks. Paul says at the beginning of verse 2, for indeed in this house we groan. And then at the beginning of verse 4, he says it again. This time, notice that he changes his metaphors a little bit, referring to our human bodies, not as a house now, but as a tent, like he did in verse 1. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan. And so in this house we groan, and in this tent we groan. Just two ways of saying basically the same thing. And why do we groan? Why do we sigh? Why are we groaning and sighing right now? Well, the implied reason for our groaning and our sighing in this text is that the promised building, think about it, the promised building to come is far, far better than the current tent, right? That's why we groan. We're in the very frail and temporary tent right now, and what do we want? Well, we're in that frail, temporary tent. We want the strong and permanent building, and so we groan about it, right? We groan about it. Here in this earthly house, which is a tent, we groan because of the many and varied ways in which it's inferior to that building from God that we've been promised back in verse 1. That house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Just think about it. In case you haven't noticed, in case you haven't noticed, these earthly tents, although fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, 14, 
um, also have a lot of problems, don't they? As the result of sin and the fall and the curse, right? Therefore, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, it says in Romans 5.12, and death through sin, right? Death through sin. Because of sin and the curse, people, these earthly tents have been subjected to death, and they are in, you know this, I know this. I'm reminded of this every morning when I wake up and try to stand up and walk. Right? It takes me a minute anymore. I used to just jump up and go, but not anymore. Things hurt. These earthly tents have been subjected to death. These things are in the process of dying, really, from the very moment they're born. Right after that baby is born, that process is under motion. Right? That decaying process is under motion. And they're in a state of progressive decay, right? It just keeps going and going and going until ultimately what happens? They die. We're ultimately moving toward death from the moment that we are born in these bodies. And why is that? It's because of that ugly, ugly, ugly thing called sin. Don't ever forget that. That's why Jesus was groaning in John chapter 11 at, at the tomb of Lazarus because he saw the, the devastation that death was bringing to all of these people and he knew that that was a horrible horrible thing that came from sin sin is what resulted in death right and so we're in a process of decay these earthly tents are going down that's why you know let me remind you of this I, I i know you know this but uh that's why what paul said in the previous chapter in second corinthians four sixteen is such a beautiful and encouraging thought for all of us who are still in these bodies therefore we do not lose heart paul said there but though our outer man is decaying Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Isn't that beautiful? Outer man is decaying. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And so what Paul's saying to us there, he's saying don't be discouraged when you see the outer man decaying more and more every day. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart over that, Paul says. You know, do take care of that outer man the best you can. Feed it right. Exercise it a little bit, but you know, don't go overboard with that deal. Don't get too carried away with that deal because it is a battle that you are ultimately going to lose. You know? Take care of it. Yes, yes, yes. Feed it right, exercise it, but don't be all consumed with that because it's a battle you're ultimately going to lose, right? I know that because the word of God says that, right? The outer man is the king. And so instead of getting all discouraged when you see what's happening to the outer man, Paul says, embrace the reality, get your mind locked in on the inner man who is being renewed day by day. And I don't know what you think, but I think that's critically important advice for believers who are still living here on this fallen earth and fallen bodies. Uh, we need to be focused on that. Second uh, Corinthians 4.16, while your outer man is going down, um, every day toward death, your inner man is going up every day toward glorification. Uh, you should be becoming more and more like your Savior every day, less and less like yourself and more and more like your Savior every day. You're moving in, you're moving in that heavenward direction. And so while we're in these earthly tents, we do groan, Paul says. And by the way, uh, he doesn't mean that in the sinful sense of being a grumbler or a complainer. That's not the idea here, but in the rightful sense of longing for that promised resurrection body that is so very much better than this one. And although it's not necessarily highlighted in this text, there is another reason why we groan in these earthly tents that should be mentioned here that we can know about from other places in Scripture. Uh, besides the fact that we're in the process of deteriorating and dying, that's certainly a valid reason for groaning, and that's what's in this text. But there is another reason. And that is the fact that these sinful, fleshly bodies are sinful. We talked about that on a previous day, if you recall. You remember, of course, that cry of Paul's heart in Romans 7.24? Remember when Paul there in Romans 7 was describing his battle, his daily battle with sin? I do that which I hate, Paul said, and so forth and so on. Um, after he got done describing his daily struggle with sin, and here I guess we could call it a groan, uh, the cry of Paul's heart was, we hear we could call it a groan from Paul's heart, wretched man that I am. Have you ever said that? I say that quite often. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Paul said, and he's, there's an exclamation point in the word of God there on that. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he went on to answer his own question at the beginning of verse 25. Thanks be to God. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, as we think about these earthly tents and as we think about this groaning, let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad that we're not going to have to live in these earthly tents forever? Aren't you glad? Before we leave this first subpoint and go on to the next one, can I have you flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute? Just for a minute. We're going to we're going to land in 1 Corinthians 15 someday real soon here, within a few weeks, um, as we work on an understanding of what our glorified bodies will be like. You see, remember the two parts to that, what, what will our form be in the present heaven question, one before the rapture, one after? Well, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15 when we get to that after the rapture form question, because that's where Paul is going to tell us what our glorified bodies are. But I'm going to give you a little preview today, a little preview. When you get there, I want you to see a quick list of contrasts that Paul makes in that chapter that I think will help you and encourage you, help you understand even further what all this current groaning is all about. Look with me just at two verses. There are 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 42 and 43. So also is the resurrection of the dead, Paul says. <clears throat> it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. That's a good contrast. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. You know, on and on we could go. This body is inferior to that resurrection body. Just think about what God has for us in the days ahead. This body is inferior to that resurrection body in every conceivable way. And so what do we do now? We groan, Paul says. We groan and we sigh, Paul says, while we're still in this one. You know, we're uncomfortable in these bodies. There's kind of a kind of a misery there in these bodies that we long to be set free from. In these earthly tents, we all have the very real sense that we're unfulfilled. We all have the very real sense that we're incomplete. We're not yet perfect. And we aren't. We aren't yet, right? And so we ache and we sigh and we yearn and we groan, Paul says, while we're in these tents. And by the way, let me just throw one more thought in here. We're not groaning alone. We're not the only groaners in the world. We're not groaning alone. Uh, let me give you a quick cross-reference here. I know we looked at it before, but let's look at it quickly again. In Romans 8, 22 and 23, Paul says that the whole creation is groaning along with us. Um, all of creation. I think we looked at that I think we looked at that text. That, by the way, is one of the, the key texts that would point to suggest to us that there will be animals in heaven. We looked at it that day. But all of creation now, including all of the animals, they were all subjected, all of creation, all of the animals were subjected to the curse because of their sin? No, because of our sin. Because of our sin. And so Paul says the whole creation is groaning right along with us. Let me read those two verses, Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, Paul says. By the way, that whole creation is also going to be redeemed, it says in that text. And not only this, but we also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, that's a foretaste of glory divine, living this life with the Holy Spirit, right? And I suppose that could make us groan even more because it just makes us long that much more for what we're going to ultimately have. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, very important phrase here at the end of that verse. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It says at the end of verse 23. How many times have you heard me say, we have got to get rid of these bodies? We have got to get rid of these bodies. Um, I remind you of something every time we're here in Romans 8.23 because it's a very important part, I think, of understanding who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ, while you're still living here on this earth in these fallen, sinful human bodies of flesh. There's only one thing, only one thing insofar as your salvation is concerned that you are still eagerly waiting for, right? There's only one part of you that is not yet redeemed. And what did Romans 8.23 just say that that is? As true believers, and I know I've said this many times before, but it's important. You need to know this. As true believers, we're already redeemed, brand new, and squeaky clean at the inner man level. The inner man level, we could go to heaven right now. No problem. Be in the presence of a holy God. The inner man level. 
but we're still eagerly waiting for something, Paul says, in Romans 8.23. What did it say at the end of that verse? We're still waiting for the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. And when is that going to happen? That is going to happen at this glorious event that we call the rapture. This glorious event that we call the rapture. And so, in 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4, two, two Paul first tells us why we groan as believers. We groan because we're still in these decaying and dying earthly tents that we long to be delivered from. And we groan, we know from other places, because these sinful fleshly bodies, and don't, isn't this the truth, they keep dragging us away. They keep dragging us away from the kind of righteous and holy lives that we want to live for the glory of God, right? No matter how hard we try, these fleshly bodies just keep dragging us away. They keep dragging us away from that perfect, righteous, holy living that we want to live, the kind of lives that we want to live for the glory of God. And for the reasons why we groan now, let's move on to these verses, to what we long for the most. To what we long for the most. This is exciting. In this next pair, pair of parallel phrases now, Paul is going to tell us what the greatest longing of his groaning heart was. What his first preference would be if he could choose. And as we transition into this second subpoint, now let me say this, as we would understand and apply what Paul is modeling for us here. If you're too attached to this life and too attached to this world and are therefore not really groaning for what Paul was groaning for, then you're not going to be longing for what Paul was longing for either. And so I need to say that. Paul's perspective, as revealed in this text, is intended by the Spirit of God to be an exhortation for you and me. This text is here to show you and me how to have that same perspective that Paul had for the glory of God. And let's go on now to look at the two parallel phrases in these two sentences that reveal what Paul longed for the most. We'll start again at verse 2, this time reading the whole verse. For indeed in this house we groan, and here it is now. What do you long for the most, Paul? What do we long for the most? Here it is. Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. That's what Paul longed for the most. While we're in this house groaning, we're also longing for something, Paul says. We're longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And would you notice an added twist here now to Paul's metaphor? And it's this added twist, by the way, that's going to help us understand the intermediate state. Would you notice with me that at the end of verse 2, that Paul has us putting on our house, our dwelling from heaven, that building from God, as if it were an article of clothing. What does he mean by that? Well, we want our glorified bodies is what that means. We want to be clothed with our resurrected and glorified bodies. And then down to verse 4, that's the parallel phrase. He continues that clothing metaphor as he expresses the same greatest longing again in the second sentence, only this time, notice that he expresses it first in a negative way and then in a positive way again. For indeed, while we are in this tent, <clears throat> we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, that's the negative way of saying it, but to be clothed, and there's the positive way, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be Swallowed up by life. Now, what Paul really wants the most here, I think, is pretty clear and easy to understand, isn't it? He wants to exchange his mortal body for an immortal body. He wants to exchange his perishable body, to put it in the terms of 1 Corinthians 15.42, for an imperishable body. What Paul really wants here, what Paul is expressing his desire for here, is clearly his resurrection body. He wants his resurrected body his glorified body. He wants that building from God, from verse 1. He wants that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. But here now is the real punchline to this that will become very clear to us as we go from here on into the third sub-point in this text. You see, not only does Paul want his resurrected and glorified body sometime in the distant future, would you please understand from this text that Paul wants his resurrected and glorified body now. Paul wants it now. He wants his body immediately. I don't think there's any other reasonable way to interpret what Paul is expressing in these verses. He does not want to be 
unclothed and a rapture resurrection, folks, would be the only way for him to avoid that. What the Apostle Paul wanted most of all, and what you and I should want most of all, is to hear the sound of the trumpet. To hear the sound of the trumpet and be raptured into heaven in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, dying and going to heaven. Listen, dying and going to heaven right now would be a wonderful and glorious thing. And I want to downplay that. Dying and going to heaven right now would be a wonderful and glorious thing. But there's even there's 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 an even more wonderful and glorious thing, and that would be to get raptured into heaven right now without death and be immediately there in your new glorified body. I don't know how you pray every day, but Jesus gave us a model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. I don't know if you ever look at that, but um, that is not a prayer that he intended us to pray. That's a model prayer he gave to teach us how to pray. It has all of the elements of prayer. And one of the elements in that prayer goes like this. Thy kingdom come. Remember that part? Thy kingdom come. What is that? What is that in Matthew 6? That is a prayer, people, for the rapture of the church is what that is. That's a prayer that you should pray every day. You see, it's the rapture that's going to set in motion the ushering in of God's kingdom. That blessed generation of believers who get raptured into heaven will bypass the valley of the shadow of death as David put it in, um, in the psalm, and they'll be immediately there in their new glorified bodies. The whole glorious thing will be a done deal, people, in a fraction of a fraction of a second. And that's what Paul wanted most of all. That was his number one preference. That's exactly what he's saying here in this text. He wanted to be alive, people. When Jesus Christ came back for his church, and it's very clear throughout the New Testament that he lived every day, with that eager expectation. From our perspective, of course, we know that it didn't work out that way for Paul, right? Uh, In the perfect plan of God, Paul didn't get the greatest desire of his heart, but that's okay, because Paul had a second preference. We're going to get to that one, too, uh, in in the latter part of this text. Paul had a second preference, and he did eventually get that, probably in kind of a brutal way, as a martyr, um, Nowhere in the Bible does it say how Paul died, but from church history, um, we know that he, historians, church historians say that uh, Paul was beheaded at the order of the Roman Emperor Nero, and that's probably true. Um, Paul eventually died, and Paul has now been at home with the Lord for a long, long time, enjoying the bliss and the glories of heaven, the presence of Christ. My wife has probably met him. I can't help but say that. She probably has. The great Apostle Paul. And you know, we'll get to that second preference of his in verses 5 to 8 of this text, but for right now, we're talking about Paul's first preference. And his first preference is the one he didn't get. And that was to be resurrected at the rapture of the church. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the rapture recently, and I hope you have. Um, There are three main texts in the New Testament that speak of and describe this glorious future and imminent event. We've read them all, I don't know how many times over the years. I think think it's fair to say that we've probably even studied them all carefully um, once or twice over the years at one time or another. I'm not going to carefully study them again right now. But because these are the texts that would fill out our, our, fill out our understanding of Paul's greatest longing here in his heart, in 2 Corinthians 5, I am going to at least read them for you, uh, those three rapture texts for you again. And let me say before, that I, before I do that um, I never get tired of reading these rapture texts. I'm very familiar with them like you are. I never get tired of reading them, and I hope you never get tired of hearing them read. Um, listen, this is our blessed hope as believers in Jesus Christ. This is our blessed hope. Um, I was telling Joe and Joel early this morning that um, I spent a little time over at the state hospital last night and I read through the pastoral epistles, first, first, second Timothy and Titus. Just, just, I don't know, something put in my mind that I wanted to do that and I hadn't done that in a while. And so I went over and did that and, and uh, this verse came to my attention in Titus 2.13. I want to read it for you. We are looking for the blessed hope 
and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, it says in Titus 2.13. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. All right, let me read these rapture texts. I love them. Three of them. The first New Testament rapture text is found in the first three verses of John chapter 14. And I know we've been here probably a dozen times in this heaven study, but I don't care. We're going to read it again. This is, in fact, where Jesus first promised the rapture to his disciples. In the context here, you know, you know the context well. His disciples were deeply troubled because at the end of chapter 13, he had just got done telling them that he was, he was leaving, right? They were baffled by that. They couldn't understand that at all. And uh, you talk about some troubled guys, they were troubled. He just told them at the end of chapter 13 he was leaving. And that was right after that, uh, in the upper room gathering, you know, where he washed their feet and so forth. You know, we'll get there someday. We're not, we get back to John, by the way. We're not too far from that. We're going back to chapter 12 and then 13. But anyway, this was right after that. And so here's what it says in John 14, 1, 2, and 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Faith is the antidote to a troubled heart. Believe in God, believe also in me, and then this great promise. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Remember we talked about that? Heaven is a very real what? Place, right? Dwelling places there. This is real. This is real stuff. And here's the promise now. Here's the rapture promise now. If I go, and he did, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. You know, I think about this. I listen sometimes to all millennial teachers that they have a rapture. They, 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 they can't deny the rapture text. They have to do something with it. And so they have this little U-turn thing. <laughs> they have this little U-turn thing. Yeah, he's going to catch us up and then, you know, we're going to come back down with him. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, he said, I've prepared a dwelling place for you. I'm coming to get you and I'm going to take you where I am. Right? Yeah, the little U-turn thing. No, no. doesn't ring my bell. Um, now, Jesus doesn't elaborate here on the glorified bodies that go along with that promise. But let me tell you what, Paul sure does. Paul sure does in both of the other texts that describe this blessed future imminent event. Uh, by the way, can I throw this in here too? We believe, we firmly believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. The church has been promised deliverance from the wrath to come. And I know there's something, well, the wrath isn't only until the second half, but no, no. The whole tribulation period is wrath from God. The whole tribulation period is wrath from God. We have been promised deliverance from that. Um, we believe in a pre-tribulation wrath. Maybe I'll give you the reasons for that someday. But uh, Paul does talk about this resurrection body in both of the texts that he deals with on this subject. Um, I think I said this before, but I'll say it again. Please understand this event to be an imminent event Prophetically, there is nothing that has to happen before the rapture can happen. The rapture is imminent. It could happen at any given moment. It could happen even today before we leave this place. And I think that would be great. I think that would be the most awesome thing. It could. And I want you to turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at another one now. The rest of these, the first one was from Jesus. These other two are from Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, when you get there, uh, land with me in verse 50. Very familiar verses. I know that. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 15. Verse 50, I'll read down through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit <clears throat> the imperishable, Paul says in verse 50. Now, I don't think that's too hard to understand, is it? Um, what does that mean? Well, it means that you can't go to heaven with your current body. Your current body isn't outfitted for heaven. You can't go to heaven in your current body. You can't live in heaven in the same earthly tent you live in now. These current bodies of ours cannot go to heaven. And so, Paul, how's this deal going to work then? Right? I'm in this body now. What happens at the rapture? Well, pretty exciting stuff happens in the rapture. And that's what Paul's going to tell us. This. How are we going to get around that problem if these bodies can't go to heaven, Paul? Well, here's, here's, how, here's how it's going to happen. Verse 51. Behold. Listen up. Behold. I tell you a mystery. What is a mystery? A New Testament mystery is something that 
Old Testament saints didn't know about. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That means that not all of us are going to die. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And so whether you sleep or whether you don't, whether you die or whether you don't, whether you die first and then, uh, you know, get resurrected or just get raptured in resurrection. If you die and have to wait for your body or if you just get resurrected at the rapture all at once, the fact remains that either way, either way, we will all be changed. All of our bodies are going to be ultimately glorified. And how fast is it going to happen, Paul? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's a fraction of a fraction of a second, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Listen, people, I'm not reading fairy tales to you right now. I'm reading the word of God. I'm reading the word of God. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We have work to do right now, don't we? And we best get to it. We've got work to do. And we can do that work no matter how hard the going gets by keeping our eyes fixed on the finish line. Eyes fixed. This, is, this is absolute truth from the word of God. And then let's look at the third one. The third and final rapture passage is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And while you're turning, I'll turn on the recorder here and give you my spiel, the context spiel, right, that I've given you so many times before. Um, we talked about it many times before. The Thessalonians were, like Paul, anticipating the rapture at any given moment. He had taught them about the rapture. They were waiting for it and expecting it. But then a, a little problem cropped up in their minds. They started worrying about their brothers and sisters in Christ. People were dying. The rapture hadn't happened yet, and their brothers and sisters were dying uh, every day. And so the Thessalonian believers were saying, whoa, they're going to miss out on the rapture, right? Brother so-and-so over here is going to miss out on the rapture, right? Paul knew about their concern, and so he writes what he writes here to instruct them about that, to comfort them about that. And by the way, you know what? I'm thankful that the Thessalonians were worried about that. You know why? Because it prompted Paul to write these words that I have now in my Bible. I'm thankful that they were worried about that. We have this now in the Word of God. Pick up with me in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Once again, I never get tired of reading this. This is good stuff. Um, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. That's been one that I've hung on to. That's been one that I've hung on to. I'm grieving, but not as the rest. Not as the rest who have no hope. But anyway, what Paul is saying here your concern, Thessalonians, your grief is based upon a lack of information. Is that what he just said? I want you to be uninformed. Your grief is based on a lack of information. And oh, how many ways could that statement be applied to professing believers in the church today, right? They're confused. and They're wrestling with stuff. and They're distressed. and They're confused about so many things that could be fixed. Listen, that could be fixed if only their churches would start teaching the precious word of God again, right? Hear the word of God now, Paul says to the Thessalonians, and it's going to fix your hearts on this issue. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, you believe that, right, Thessalonians? Yeah, they believe that. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Isn't that a great promise? These folks you're worried about, Paul says, please, please, please don't worry about them anymore. They're with the Lord right now. Listen, folks, they're far better off than any of you are right now. And when Jesus comes to rapture away the rest of you, they're all coming with him. Those folks are all coming with him. You will see them again when they come with him. You will recognize them again when they come with him. Listen, there is going to be, there is going to be on that day, people, a grand and glorious reunion, the likes of which we have never known before. 
For this we say to you, verse 15, by the word of the Lord, and watch this now, here's how the rapture is going to unfold. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And here's how it's going to go now. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Here you are, Paul says, all worried, all frenzied about those friends and brothers and sisters and relatives of yours who have died, thinking that they're going to miss out on the rapture. No, no, no. They're not going to miss out on the rapture. And as a matter of fact, Thessalonians, they're going to be one up on you at the rapture. Their bodies are going up at least a fraction of a second before yours are going up, right? Uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, the Bible says. Just think about it. You know, those cemeteries out there, those very final, very permanent looking cemeteries with all the stone, sods all grown up, those very final and permanent looking graves are coming open, Paul says. They're coming open. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. We're going up right behind them, very fast. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, therefore, verse 18, Paul says. Listen, folks, now that you understand the word of God, comfort one another with these words, right? So what happened to all the worry and all the frenzy? Psst, just got deflated, didn't it? Right? That's how the word of God works. That's how the word of God works. You've got to know what it means by what it says. And it'll fix your hurting, frenzied, worried heart every time. Right? It's the truth of the word of God that fixes problems like that for people. And Paul just did that for these believers in Thessalonica. And so back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4 now. We've got one more point to go. Paul has told us why we groan. And that is because of our fallen humanness. We groan because of these sinful, decaying, and dying bodies that we currently live in. And then based on that, he's also told us what we long for the most, and that is rapture resurrection. That would be preference number one for all of us. The greatest desire of your heart, Paul's, like Paul, should be to get raptured into heaven, bypassing death and being immediately there in your resurrected and glorified body, ready then for the millennial kingdom and the eternal state forever and ever and ever and ever when God is going to come down to dwell with us forever. And let's go out and finish up now this morning with the third sub-point here in this section of our text from verses 2 to 4. Paul tells us why we groan, what we long for the most, and finally now he's going to tell us what we would prefer to bypass if we could have what we long for the most. Let me just read our two sentences again here, and then we'll pick up the parts that, we, that we've left out so far. Our first sentence is in verses 2 and 3, and I'm going to read it all, but our focus this time now is going to be just on verse 3. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, verse 3, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. The phrase, inasmuch as, at the beginning of verse 3, simply means that Paul is about to further clarify now what he just said in verse 2. We long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, that new glorified body, because, inasmuch as, we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Why did Paul long most for the rapture? He was okay with death, that was his second preference, but why was his first preference the rapture? He longed most of all for the rapture so that he'd get his glorified body right away and not have to go through, what did he say? A period of what? A period of nakedness. Now, I know that it's taken us a long time to get here. All of our time last week and every, every bit of time up till now today, it's taken us a long time to get here. But we're finally getting down to why we're here, right? We're finally getting, learning something about the intermediate state, right? That's why... We're here in this text. We're here because we're studying the subject of heaven. And more specifically, because we want to know what form we will be in there in the present heaven during that period of time um, in between death and resurrection, that period of time in between death and rapture. And so 
Would you go ahead now and mark Paul's answer to that question? Mark Paul's answer to that question. Paul just clearly defined that period of time for us in this text as a period of nakedness. Period of nakedness. Now, here's what I'm going to say about that. That is not just a hint. That is not just a hint. That is not just an implication or a suggestion. That is a crystal clear statement right here in the Word of God about the intermediate state. And so underline that word or circle that word naked in your Bibles and then understand and never forget that Paul has just defined the intermediate state. If you die and go to heaven before the rapture, you're going to be there in a, in a state of nakedness. Okay? Now, there are lots of commentators. Let me kind of prep you a little bit for what we're going to talk about next week. There are lots of commentators out there who will try to tell us that God is going to give us some kind of a temporary body. We're going to get an intermediate body, a temporary body to live in in the present heaven while we're waiting for our resurrection body. There's absolutely nothing in Scripture that says anything about such a thing. They get that idea from some of the other texts that speak to this subject. And so before we go on to finish our study of verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 here in 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to spend our time next Lord's Day, Lord willing, looking at those other texts that speak to the subject of the intermediate state. And as we do, as we look at those, from what those other texts say, you will see how easily and how tempting it will be to want to land on that idea of a temporary body. But when we go to those other texts on the subject of the intermediate state now, we're going to go to those other texts with a stake driven into the ground from this clearest and most complete text on that subject. And that's the one that we're studying right now. And so no matter what those other texts seem to say, we'll talk about all of that next week, please understand something. We cannot change what the Apostle Paul just said. Clearly and undisputably about the intermediate state. That's why we've studied this text on this subject first. And that's why I just had you underline or circle that word naked in your Bibles there in 2 Corinthians 5.3. There is, listen, there is no wiggle room on this one. No wiggle room. There's only one possible way to interpret what naked means in the context of these verses. Nakedness in the intermediate state, Paul has just clearly said, has to mean being there in heaven without your body. And we know that's true, right? When you die and go to heaven, where does your body go? doesn't go with you. It goes in the ground somewhere, right? You go to heaven, your body goes in the ground, right? You're going to be there without a body. And so that's an anchor truth for us on this subject that cannot be changed. Paul clearly says that for those who die before the rapture, there will be a period of nakedness. And so before we leave 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4 to this morning, let's all get out our hammers and nail this truth down that Paul has just taught us today about the intermediate state. If you as a believer die before the rapture, there will be a period of time there in the present heaven when you will not have a body, a period of time when your new inner man or your new inner woman will be naked. We got one more, one more parallel text to look at or verse to look at, and so let's do that quickly. Let's finish up now with a parallel statement on this. If you would drop down to verse 4 now, we'll see Paul say that same thing again in a slightly different way in our second parallel sentence here. Verse 4, For indeed, while we are in this tent... We groan, being burdened, being pressed, being weighed down because we do not want to be unclothed. All right, before he said naked, now he says unclothed. But to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence here this morning. But I'm going to go ahead and ask the question anyway, just to drive home the important point here. What does it mean to be unclothed? Being clothed is to be naked. Two ways of saying the same thing. And so in verses 2 to 4 this morning, we've understood Paul's first preference. If Paul could run the world, if Paul could have it the way he would most like to have it, he would choose hands down rapture, resurrection. And he would choose rapture, resurrection, so that he could immediately be there in heaven in his resurrected and glorified body and not have to go through this period of nakedness, this period of being there in heaven as a disembodied spirit. That's kind of a mysterious concept. We have nothing to really measure that against. We, it's a hard thing for us to understand. 
appear to be there in heaven as a disembodied spirit. You see, that could never be our ultimate desire. And it won't be. We're not going to be that forever. That could never be our ultimate desire because God has created us to live in a body. That's why there is a body in our future, and we're going to live in that body forever. And it's going to be like our Savior's glorified body, right? And with that stake in the ground now, make sure that's firmly planted in the ground concerning the nakedness in the intermediate state. Next time, as I said a minute ago, we're going to kind of depart from this text for a little while to look at those other texts that speak to the subject. And then the following week, the plan will be to come back and finish up with those final four verses we have left there in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul explains his second preference. And so that's where we're going. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the Apostle Paul is there with you in heaven right now. He's there in this very state of nakedness that he has described for us in our text today. And Father, we know also that that is very much better than being here. We confess to you, Father, our desire to know more about that intermediate state than you have chosen to reveal to us, but we trust you in that because you are God. There are yet a few more things we can know about it, and so we're going to keep exploring. We ask that you would help us, Father, as we explore some other scriptures now on that subject next Lord's Day morning. Fill out our understanding, Lord, with everything you have for us. Bring us to the right conclusions. And then, Lord, we ask always that you would continue to use your word that goes out from this little place to do those things you promised to do with it, to save the lost and sanctify the saved for your eternal honor and glory. We love and worship you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.